Amen. Good morning. We are in 1 Samuel 17 today. You have your bulletin insert and you see how lengthy uh, 1 Samuel 17, in fact, is. And so we're not even going to be able to read the entire chapter. Uh, It is so lengthy. Uh, As you often hear, uh, good morning, I am Drew Bennett or I am Jonathan Winfrey. Uh, I am neither of those. Uh, But someone actually told me this morning that since Jonathan wasn't here, uh, there wouldn't be such a lengthy prayer and I'd have a lot more time. So uh, I didn't say that, but I thought it was funny. Uh, You have been brought up to date, I would imagine. Uh, I apologize, I have not listened to the previous two weeks Uh, to know exactly what has been said. But the historical background to this point is that the people of Israel have chosen their king. Uh, In Deuteronomy, we are told over and over again that when they reach the land, they're going to have a king, and the kings will not do things for them that they thought they would do, and that they will learn, and the only one in whom they can fully trust is God himself. And sure enough, as we reach 1 Samuel, we see that they indeed have chosen their king. He is Saul. In the previous chapters, we find that he's a rich man, he's a tall man, he's a handsome man, a prime candidate for office in our country. Imagine, uh, you would not choose to vote for someone, probably, if you saw them on television and you would think, well, he's not a good-looking guy. He doesn't have money. Uh, What has he done in his life? So before we jump on the Israelites too much, in why they chose Saul, because he was rich and tall and handsome. In the prime of his life, he was popular. In fact, in 1 Samuel 10, it says that they said, there was no one in Israel like Saul. We must be careful in how we choose our leaders as well. But we see that Saul disobeyed. He disobeyed God's commands in the fact that he did not wipe out the Amalekites as he had been instructed to do. If that wasn't enough, he went and saw a fortune teller, a psychic, if you will. And so Samuel had to bring the news that God had given to him, to Saul, that God has rejected you because you have rejected God's style of leadership. You have rejected God himself and his ways. And we read that Samuel mourned. Samuel mourned the process that indeed Israel was undergoing at this time. He could see what was coming down the road. So Samuel mourned because God had given them the land. God had given them uh, the ability to have their own king, and yet the king himself was endangering the people. And the king thus was endangering the land. We read even in 1 Samuel that God regretted that Saul had become king. Now, it's not that God was caught by surprise or anything like that, but what is going on there is that the writer is letting us know that, that God is not impersonal. That God is not stoic. That his heart went out to Israel because Saul was the king. But we read also in chapter 16 that God has anointed or had Samuel to anoint David as king. You recall the story. Jesse goes out and he gets his sons and brings them in. And Samuel is told, don't go with your natural inclination. God tells him him not to go with the the natural way that he would choose leaders. And so Samuel says, no, not that one, not that one, not not that one. All the way down, is there anyone else? Well, Jesse says, yeah, there is the one shepherd boy, of course. You don't mean him, of course. Bring him in. He brings him in. This is the one. This is the one who is to be the future king of Israel. 
And yet the writer makes it clear that he was nothing more than a shepherd boy. And now we find in chapter 17 that the Philistine threat is well underway. And yet the writer has just told us in chapter 16 something that if we're not careful, we can easily overlook it. And that is that when David was chosen or anointed, if you will, to be the future king, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. And so we find the writer setting a scene for us that somehow David is going to be made the future king of Israel and that the Spirit has already come upon him. But in chapter 17, we find the Philistines have invaded Judah. Now, this is significant because they've invaded Judah. The earlier chapters tell us that the Philistines had 30,000 chariots. 30,000 chariots. Israel didn't have any. Not only did they have 30,000 chariots, they also had 6,000 horsemen. And they were fully armed. Israel is caught because the Philistines have come to the point of the valley. And they're standing on one side of the valley. The Israelite army is on the other side of the valley. And now we, the author is painting a, a picture for us that this battle is not going to be fought in the, the hills and the rough lands. If there's going to be a battle, it's going to be in the valley where the chariots and the horsemen can run free and roughshod over Israel. They don't stand a chance. And yet God has said in the chapter earlier, David will be the next king. So as we reach our text today, the question is, what is God going to do? And how is God going to pull this off? The odds are all stacked against Israel. I believe you have our text ready for us today. Chapter 17, we're going to begin reading in verse 17. Now the first 16 verses depict a a story for us, a setting of where Goliath has been coming out and taunting the Israelites. For 40 days, this has been happening, the continual threat. Uh, Imagine, if you will, Shaquille O'Neal, some seven feet tall, 350 pounds. Now the Bible tells us that Goliath was even taller, some nine feet tall. And he he comes out as the representative of the Philistines with his taunt. And Israel is facing the question, well, who are we? We've been told we're going to get the land. We've been told we will be delivered. And Saul, Saul the one who has been anointed king, who has been rejected by Samuel, is now facing the same question. Who am I? What is my track record? What what can I pull off in this? How am I going to lead the people? They're trusting in me. The writer is careful to tell us that Jesse has talked to David. Jesse, his father. And he has told him, uh, son, you know, you're the youngest. I want you to go up there, and I want you to take some cheeses and some snacks, some food, so your brothers will be nourished, and, because the men are up there fighting in the war against the Philistines. Notice what the author's doing there. The men are up there fighting. You, my youngest son, you know, you're the gopher. Go up there, and you're the errand boy. And take the cheese and the food, and come back and tell me how the real men are doing. So let's pick it up at verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. 
For 40 days, the Philistines came forward, the Philistine came forward and took a stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. And also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand. And see if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistine drew up for the battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. He has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. 
with a shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to him, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. And that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now, I know that's long. I know that's lengthy. But God has inspired Scripture, and he wants, you know, a lot of his stories, there are summations with just a few details. God wants us to know the details of this story, and thus we've read the vast majority of it. We've seen that initially David is told by Jesse, you're just a boy. You're just a boy. I need you to go, and I need you to take the grain and the cheese to your brothers while the real men are up there doing the fighting. We've seen that Goliath has been taunting. But the turn of the story was in verse 23. And did you catch that? In verse 23, we saw, as he talked with them, after he had arrived, and and both sides were there on the sides of the valley, and he talked with them, behold, the, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. It, you can imagine you're watching this, and this is a movie, and all of a sudden the music starts because David heard him. The, the, the chimes ring. In some way, it's an indication to the audience, uh-oh, David heard him. David cannot believe what he sees. He sees the army is paralyzed with fear. He sees the king, King Saul, is paralyzed in fear. And so we are reminded in reading this story, yes, there are metaphors that we as the church, we're the family of God. And we are to love one another. And we are to go out here and, and we are to be an example of love to the community. But there are other things in Scripture that are true of the church. Not only are we a family and not only are we the bride of Christ, but we are called to live in his army, to serve in his army. And we are to fight the good fight, as Paul said. And these are both equally true. And they are just as hard to live. And so we find ourselves erring from one extreme to the other. 
Some of you, by your personality, uh, you will err in trying to be so sweet out there with the world that you just won't stand up to them. And some of you, by your personality, you want to fight the fight, but you're not going to do too good of a job of loving them. And here we are reminded of David, the one whom the Spirit of the Lord has come upon in the earlier chapter. And he's already hearing this and seeing the fear and how the men are failing in their call to fight the good fight. And so David looks at this army and he realizes that God is testing the army. Uh, God has told them throughout in the book of Deuteronomy, when you get to the land, when you get to the land, you will inherit the land. It reminds me of when we were uh, reading our Bibles together as a family, and this is several years ago, and Mark, who is now a freshman in high school, was just a little thing. He was five or six years old, and we would read like maybe two chapters a night in Deuteronomy. It was the first time he had ever heard Deuteronomy. And after the, I got to about chapter 31 or 32, you know, 15, 16 nights of this, when you get to the land, when you get to the land, when you get to the land. And he had heard that over and over. And finally, when I'm reading there that night in chapter 31 or 32, and I read, when you get to the land, Mark just erupts and says, Dad, when are they ever going to get there? And David was remembering that they had gotten there. And God had promised them the land, and God had promised them deliverance. But he sees the army fearful and not willing to fight the fight. God had promised, I will deliver your enemies into your hands. God is saying, do you trust me? And David is seeing the army does not trust God. David is seeing the king himself, King Saul, has not taken God at his word. And even one of the soldiers, we're told in verse 25, the the, the pictures in this narrative are amazing. Even one of the soldiers we see said to David, Haven't you seen this guy? Of course we're over here. We're going to get killed. They've got all those chariots. They've got all those horsemen. We don't stand a chance. And yet we read David saying, why don't we go ahead and fight? Why doesn't somebody do something? Why doesn't somebody stand up to the bully who keeps defying us, who keeps defying our God and defying God's army? David even says, you know, you'll get a wife out of it, the king has promised you, and you'll get tax exemption from the government for the rest of your life. But what we see is that we become like the one in whom we trust. And the army, those men who are much bigger than David or older than David, as the writer is depicting the story, the men, and here's the boy, The men are becoming like the one in whom they have placed all their trust, Saul. They're becoming fearful, and they will not fight. David is thinking, who is this guy, and why does he have such a sway and a hold and a pull on God's people? Before we uh, begin to think too much of ourselves and put ourselves in David's spot here, we must ask ourselves, why is it that some people out there in the world who are not God's people have such sway over us? Why is it we are so intimidated by them? Why is it we do not trust our God to stand for his ways and for his will and to be used by him as his instrument in our community? Well, they're outnumbered and they're smaller. And so they convince themselves and they rationalize and they justify why they are not fighting. But we see they are suffering from 
a spiritual amnesia, if you will. Uh, They've forgotten who God is. They have the Pentateuch. Uh, They have the many acts of God and how God has delivered Israel from Pharaoh, the strongest man, the most powerful man in the world at that time. He's delivered them by the use of plagues, supernatural plagues. How many times was God telling Moses, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob? It's there over and over again. And why does he do that for Moses? to remind him of what he's done in the past so he will trust him in the present. And here David is seeing the men are not trusting God in the present. They have forgotten what God has done for Israel in their past. If that's not enough, sibling rivalry, family friction. Every one of us who has become at least a young adult knows by now the hardest people in the world to serve God around as your own family. They, they, will, they will not trust you. They will tempt you in certain ways. You will do the same to them. We find David reaching Eliab. Eliab is the oldest of the brothers. David comes on the scene, and what does Eliab do immediately? Does he humble himself? Does he admit him what David has been saying is correct? That would take some courage, would it not? For the older brother to look at the little teenage brother and say, you know what? I'm glad God sent you to us. You are right. I am wrong. Thank you. Thanks for having the guts to tell us the truth. No, what does Eliab do? He goes on the attack. He's infuriated that his little brother would come and not accept the status quo. David will not stand for this bully who intimidates people and who defies God himself and defies his people. And so Eliab goes on the tack. He even presumed to know his motives. Did you notice that? I know why you came. I know your heart. No, he doesn't. And before we, you know, it's easy for us to even reading this, we can like, yeah, I know how somebody said they knew my heart and forget how we've done that to others as well thinking we know their heart. David will not accept the status quo. David even said, can't I even speak? Get the picture here? Eliab just keeps hammering his younger brother. He won't let David talk. What did I do, David says? Hello. You know what I'm telling you is the truth. Won't you even let me speak for God? And then we find word gets to Saul of this young man who has come. This young man who is being pictured by Eliab as cocky and arrogant. And so we learn from this that if we too will stand for God and oppose evildoers, there will be even some in our midst who will call us evildoers, who will say they know our hearts, who say we're cocky or arrogant. And in some occasions we may be. But the writer has let us know that is not the case here. David's motives is to stand for God and for God's glory. Now, word has gotten to Saul. And what does Saul do when David comes to him? Does Saul praise uh, praise David? Does, Does Saul say, you know, you're just what we needed. We're all scared to death, 
And uh, we're thankful you come here and are going to set us straight and remind us who God is, what God's done in the past for our nation, and the promises of God. No. Saul makes age an issue. And isn't that typical? Uh, When we're in the wrong, we will project onto the other person and, and make something else the issue. And Saul says, who are you? I mean, I've been doing this for years. I'm the king. Who are you? Uh, And in fact, you're so young, that guy's been a warrior longer than you've been alive. Interesting that in 1 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Ephesus, gives them a certain uh, warning uh, that they are not, the church in Ephesus is not to make age an issue for Timothy. And he tells Timothy, in particular, in writing that letter to Timothy, don't let them use your age against you. And so I just thought that very appropriate in this week, looking at this, of how that would be a temptation for for Jonathan and Drew in the midst of some of you who are much older and you're much more experienced and you have different life experiences. We need to encourage them to not let others make age an issue. So we see here that that God has put David in this situation at this time, despite the fact that he is a very young man. In fact, we've seen he's been called a boy on more than one occasion here. So Saul is saying, you don't stand a chance. He's talking down to David. Uh, Saul is showing us what kind of leader he is under pressure. When Saul is questioned, does he have the security, does he have... The, um, is he sure he's right? That's always the irony, isn't it? When someone gets all riled up and starts yelling, I know I'm right, I know I'm right, there's a good chance they don't really know they're right. They're not so sure after all. There's not that confidence after all. And so Saul is being very condescending to David. For Saul, it's not man-on-man dialogue. It's the king looking down on David. How has David responded? He responds, hey, I'm tougher than you think. No. In fact, what David says, if you look in verse 37 in his response to Saul, in verse 37, he says, and David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Why does David have such great confidence? It's totally counterintuitive to the way you and I live. It's totally counterintuitive to the way we're raised. It's totally counterintuitive to the way the culture uh, educates one another. It is not because he has confidence in himself. Just believe in yourself, the culture will tell you. And after a while, we began to believe like that. No. The writer is making it clear David does not believe in himself. David believes that God has ordered his life and the events of his life up to this point, and so his confidence is in God, and that's why he has much confidence. It is not a self-confidence. It is a confidence in the sovereign God. And so he says, because God acted in the past, I trust God for what he will do in the present. The writer of Proverbs says that we are to trust in the Lord But he doesn't just stop there. In chapter 3 of Proverbs, he says, and we are to lean not on our own understanding. 
Now, it's not calling for a foolish trust. It's not saying that we don't gain insights throughout our life. But he is saying don't lean on your insights. Because our insights can be very cloudy. Uh, They can be faulty as well. Think about it. Even in your Christian walk, how many times have you found yourself going, oh my goodness, I mean, I thought I was 100% right about this. And five years ago, I thought I was so smart about this and had this nailed. I was clueless. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. This is not something theoretical. This is not something merely philosophical. This is something practical to walk and direct your paths. So he says, because God has promised, because God has prepared me, because God has delivered me, I'm trusting God will so deliver me now in the present. And then we find Goliath. David approaches Goliath. He he has rejected the armor that Saul is giving him. After all, Saul is being pragmatic. He's doing what any secular leader would do. The the issue is how well you're, uh, the technology. That's the issue. You need all this armor. David rejects the armor, and he goes with merely stones and a sling. We find him running toward Goliath. We find Goliath there calling upon his gods and and cursing David and the nation of Israel. And David says, I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. He looks at Goliath, and he says, yeah, you come with a big sword there. But it's as if David is saying, but is that all you got, big guy? Is that all you got? Because I'm coming in the name of the Lord. It's as if David is looking him right in the eye and he's saying, this really isn't about me. This is about God. And God's promises to this nation regarding this land and his people. Remember, in 1 Samuel 16, just that one little statement that after David is anointed as king, The Spirit of the Lord came upon David. And now we begin to see what the result of that was. The result of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon David was a courage. It was a confidence in God. It was a willingness to to weigh the risk and the rewards and say, yes, the risks are worth it to take God at his word. So we are reminded by the Apostle Paul in his letter to Timothy that We have not been given a spirit of fear. But we have been uh, not we have not been given a spirit of timidity. We've been given a spirit of sonship. Now I ask you, how many resources does a son of a king have? He's got them all. There's nothing that is not at his disposal. David has been promised the kingship. so we are reminded today that we have been made sons of the everlasting, the eternal, the almighty creator, God. And so we find at the end of the narrative, David slings and hurls the stone. Goliath is knocked unconscious. He doesn't even have, David doesn't even have a sword. He goes and uses the sword of Goliath himself and chops off his head. The rest of the narrative says the Philistines ran. Let's get out of here. And the Israelites ran after them. 
well, what are we to do to this story? What are we to to think of this story for us some 3,000 years later? I certainly hope you don't sit there and go, yep, I'm David. (laughs) I hope we'll have the courage, pun intended, I hope we'll have the courage to say, yep, I'm Saul. Yeah, I'm Saul's army. Yeah, I'm Eliab, the oldest brother. I'm even Jesse, (laughs) who just looks at my boy as a little boy, makes him a little gopher boy. May we see ourselves as those who are so often paralyzed with fear, fear to stand up. Sometimes it's even hard to even stand for God in the church because you just want to fit in, you want to be loved, you want to be accepted, you don't want to make waves. But you can even suffer persecution here if you're obeying Jesus fully. Yes, let us remind ourselves that we too have forgotten God's promises. We are like that army. We are like Saul. And this reminds us that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. As we are not preaching to ourselves day after day, reminding ourselves of God's promises, we too will be fearful. We will be cowards. And we will rationalize with all kinds of reasons why we don't stand against evil. But there's good news. Even though we are cowards, even though we are fearful, gutless, Jesus came to die for gutless cowards like us. And he stared down the greatest challenge ever in the history of mankind. And as Luke tells us, he was in misery. And as John says that he said his soul was very troubled to the point of sorrow, his human psyche was aching. Luke tells us he was sweating profusely. And he's crying out, my God, if there's any other way. But encourage, because he's full of the Spirit. He's in perfect unity with the Father and the Spirit. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Let us not look at this too simplistic in our own lives to think this means that we will no longer have fear. Jesus himself admitted his soul was very troubled. It was killing him. But courage is what goes through what kills us, what scares us, what paralyzes us. So Jesus faced the religious leaders of his day and he called them hypocrites in courage. He stared them down, called them a brood of vipers. He went to the Romans and he stood before Pilate, told him who he was. And if that wasn't enough, he stared down the wrath of God, which I got to tell you, I don't know what that means. I can't imagine what that is. He stared it down, and he drank the full cup, every last drop of it. And he did it to die for people who are cowards like you and me. And so we sang earlier, And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died. 
to take away my sin. Now, how great is our Savior? How great is our God? How great is Jesus Christ for us? Only he can rescue us. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, there's no way I've done justice to this passage today, but I do pray in some way you can use it. I pray that in some way you were exalted through it because we see you as the ultimate man of courage. And because you have been so courageous for us and it cost you everything, may our hearts be warmed and challenged and stirred to be courageous for you when it will cost us something in this life. And may we do it not to get a claim for ourselves as courageous people. May we not even do it to be thought of as a great church. But may our only boast be in you. May our main and primary concern be your name, your glory, in this community, in this church, and in our lives. This I pray in your name. Amen. What a perfect uh, final ending, that, that song. And I hope that you realize today, David is not the hero. Uh, the hero is God who came through on his promises and delivered Israel from the Philistines just as he had promised. And God is the hero and that he came and delivered us just as he promised he would do. Uh, in listening to that last song, a passage came to my mind. I know you always use the, uh, the same benediction. I would like to use a different one today. Uh, Because it is scripture. I think I can get away with that. Take these words with you today and think of how God delivered David and the Israelites and how he delivers us through Jesus. And then this promise is given. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.